0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. Uh, my name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, thank you for joining us on this Tuesday evening uh, for a very special presentation, one I personally have been very excited about. Um, before we get started, I have a couple announcements. Um, first off, uh, this doesn't happen very often, but uh, the, the book tonight that we're here to promote is uh, Gods of the Upper Air, but Charles King... Uh, his wife, also known as the, uh, the house anthropologist, I believe is what we said, uh, has a book that was just released today. It's called The Plateau. We've got copies up there at the cafe counter, so let's give it up for Maggie. Maggie, if you want to raise your hand, there's Maggie. Um, so we have signed copies uh, up at the front counter. Um, some other announcements, um, if you have not yet heard, we have announced the dates and authors for the Harrisburg Book Festival, which is this fall from October 3rd through the 6th. Uh, please, please, please check out our website. It's called hbgbookfest.com, really easy. Um, And the Facebook event is now live as well. Uh, We've confirmed some really exciting authors and more are going to be added throughout the next few weeks. Uh, And we have the author's books actually up at the cafe counter now, uh, including Taya Obrey, Ibram Kendi, Vashti Harrison, Aisha Sasseh, Madeline Miller, and many, many uh, more authors. Uh, We're also going to have our large annual tent sale, which is going to be across the street from the bookstore, Uh, Literally tens of thousands of books priced at $3 and under. Uh, So again, hpgbookfest.com, October 3rd through the 6th. Definitely mark your calendars and come back for that. All events are free and open to the public. Uh, No tickets are required. Um, At this time, I'd like to welcome uh, Messiah College Professor of Anthropology, Dr. General Paris, to the stage. Uh, Dr. Paris will will be providing the introduction for Charles King and the book we're here tonight to talk about. Gods of the Upper Air, How a Circle of Renegade Anthropologists Reinvented Race, Sex, and Gender in the 20th Century. So please welcome Dr. Paris to the stage.
1: I have a few words about the book, and then a few words about Charles King by way of introduction. As an undergraduate, Margaret Mead inspired my vision of adulthood, womanhood, and career. I love her. I was very distressed when many in my field, anthropology, began throwing her under the bus for not coming out in the 1940s the way we imagine she might have in today's context. She and Benedict and Hurston and Boaz should be valued for what they actually contributed, not just be historical projection screens for ways we would like the past to support us today. The subtitle of the book references race sex and gender as major areas of contribution by these anthropologists. It's true, but we could also list words like the equal value of all persons, the equal human capacity of all persons, and the adaptive brilliance of all cultures. This era of anthropology repaired eugenic, biologically racial, and supremacist ideas, ideas that have resurfaced with a vengeance in our world today. There is so much for us to learn from them including and beyond race, sex, and gender. I spent this summer teaching in Sitka, Alaska, teaching on the campus of of the historic Sheldon Jackson Native Boarding School. Questions about the place and value of Native Americans in a colonized North America are are as alive today as in the early 20th century. This work speaks to us today. Obviously, I would like to talk for a really long time about this subject, so I'm going to invite myself and you to store up all our curiosity for questions at the end of the presentation. Let me briefly introduce our author. Charles King is the author of seven books, Translations have appeared in French, German, Italian, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, and other languages. He lectures widely on international affairs and has worked with major broadcast media such as CNN, NPR, the BBC, the History Channel, and MTV. King's articles and commentary have been published in magazines and newspapers including The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, Foreign Affairs, and the Times Literary Supplement, as well as leading academic journals. He is Professor of International Affairs and Government at Georgetown University, where he has served as chair of both the Department of Government and the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, the world's premier school of global affairs. He lives in Washington, DC, with his wife, the writer and anthropologist, Margaret Paxson. Welcome, Dr. King.
2: Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks very much, Janelle. Um, I'm delighted to be here. And this is an amazing bookstore. This is absolutely beautiful. Um, Y'all are so lucky uh, to have this here right in your uh, neighborhood. And thank you for supporting your local independent bookstore, Um, especially one with a balcony, which is the absolute best. Um, So welcome. Welcome, folks up there, too. Um, So this is a book about a group of people who contested a set of fundamental and obvious ideas. The fundamental and obvious ideas were these. That cultures around the world can be ranked according to the primitive ones, the savage ones, the merely barbaric ones, um, and the truly civilized ones. That public life naturally belongs to men, And that women, when they're admitted to public life at all, are likely to be most successful in the rearing of children um, and the domestic arts. Um, The idea that race is biological and inheritable, so that regardless of the way in which you present physically in the world, that little atom of whatever your true racial identity is will still be there, and it can be outed. Uh, if we only look into your family history or genealogy. That, um, That sexual desire is of one particular type, and any other type of sexual desire is deviant or ill. These were ideas that were so common a century ago that they weren't attached to a fringe political movement. They weren't attached to the fringe of one political party. They were so obvious so in your face, so agreed upon by everyone, that here in the United States, we carved it into the facade of that great institution of knowledge in the place I live, in Washington, D.C., the Library of Congress. If you happen, next time you're in Washington, to walk around the Jefferson Building, that grand, ornate, main Library of Congress building with a beautiful interior dome in the main reading room have a walk around the exterior of the building. And what you will find if you look up at the keystones above the second story windows is a literal carving in stone of the hierarchy of the world as it was understood at the time in the 1890s when that building opened. Um, The keystones are composed of 33 ethnological heads, as they were called at the time, taken from drawings and casts in the collection of the Smithsonian it will not be surprising for you to see, perhaps, that the white people are on the front of the building, people of European, particularly Northern European descent. Various lesser types of Europeans and Asians wrap around the sides of the building, and people of African and Melanesian descent are on the back of the building. That natural hierarchy was so completely obvious to everyone that it, that it determined what you would see when you went to a museum, that natural progression from savagery and barbarism to civilization. That's the way a museum was organized. With all of the groups and civilizations and peoples that were at the same station stop along this natural progression to us, course, we were the end, we were the terminus of this developmental pathway, you would see all of the artifacts from these peoples and civilizations grouped together by the stage that they happened to be at. Not what part of the world they happened to be in, not what language group they were a part of, but what stage of human development they were at. Because with enough flush toilets and with the Ford Motor Company and with evangelical Christianity, you could too progress farther along that pathway until you became us. This determined not only what you would see when you were in a museum, it's what every how every geography course was taught, how every biology course was taught, it was what was on your identity documents if you happened to be an American citizen. It was part of our census collecting. In fact, it was so obvious that if we wanted to know what your racial identity was in the United States, we didn't just ask you, why would we possibly ask you? It was so obvious that it was the census taker until 1960 who determined what your racial identity was and then wrote it down on a census document. And if that wasn't obvious enough, the the U.S. Bureau of the Census would helpfully provide a set of predetermined boxes to you so that all you had to do was check one of these obvious racial boxes. Of course, we still do that today. The Census Bureau predetermines the appropriate racial categories. And of course, it was only in the 2000 census that you could begin to declare more than one identity as your appropriate, proper, true, deep race. The people in this book were arrayed against these ideas when it was really, really hard to be arrayed against them. Because they were taking on our own sense of obviousness, our own racial and gender and sexual common sense in late 19th century and early 20th century America. At their core, was this person named Franz Boas, who had immigrated to the United States in the 1880s. He was of German-Jewish origin, Um, tried to find a job in the United States as a kind of amateur geographer. But as you might imagine, there weren't a lot of want ads for amateur geographer um, back in the day. He had spent some time on Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, financed by his father, um, trying to write up some original treatise on the Inuit of Baffin Island. Uh, proposed that to the, to the Smithsonian, not particularly interested. Got a job for a while on the Chicago, the Staff of Chicago World's Fair. Once that closed down, no permanent job was, uh, was waiting for him. He worked for a while as an assistant editor at Science Magazine, uh, then became an assistant curator at the newly opened American Museum of Natural History in New York, before around the turn of the century landing a job as a part-time paid professor at Columbia University in the newly formed Department of Anthropology there. Uh, Boaz was a rather difficult character. Most of the time when he left a job, the people he left behind were happy to see him go. Um, And he did not endear himself to uh, to really many people along the way. Um, But what he had was the classroom. And that classroom, that seminar room, turned out to be a pretty... Magical place, especially when from time to time he found himself on the wrong side of the administration of Colombia itself. Um, He took the German side in the First World War. He couldn't understand why the United States was at all interested in fighting on the side of one set of imperialists as against another set of imperialists. Didn't make any sense to him thought the Germans had a pretty good case um, in that conflict, Um, and was um, essentially shut out of a fair amount of the teaching, not fired, but shut out a fair amount of the teaching that he was supposed to be doing at Columbia Had his research funding cut. And he went across Broadway to a place called Barnard College, that is Columbia's College uh, for Women. And that became the real making of what would become not only the Boaz School of Social Science of what would come to be called cultural anthropology, but the entire profession of anthropology in the United States, and the crucible of a revolution in thinking about race, gender, sexuality, and most other categories that we uh, held so dear in the United States a, a, a century ago. Into that magical seminar room of his came people like Ruth Benedict, who was a kind of depressed uh, housewife. Her husband was a professor at Cornell Medical School, Um, had uh, as a a hobby a small engine repair and wanted her to be really very quiet while he engaged in small engine repair. Um, She started taking some free classes downtown at a place that would would eventually be called the New School for Social Research and met a set of professors there who said, you know, you should really do a graduate degree uptown with this guy, Boaz, and she did, became Boaz's uh, graduate student, then uh, became his essential, essential partner, his assistant in the building of the Columbia Anthropology Department. She was also the TA of another young Barnard undergraduate named Margaret Mead, um, who um, had spent a year at um, a university in Indiana before transferring to New York, completed her undergraduate degree at Barnard, and then, like Benedict, was drawn into this magical circle run by uh, Boaz and did her master's degree and doctorate then at Columbia and, of course, would go on to become one of the greatest public scientists of the 20th century, outspoken figure on everything from U.S. foreign policy to sexual education to the trials of adolescence, you name it. Meade had an opinion um, on it. Another Barnard undergraduate who came into the Boaz Circle at, the, at a little bit after Meade, although she was quite a bit older than Meade at the time, was uh, Zora Neale Hurston. We think of Hurston, of course, as a novelist. Their eyes were watching God uh, uh, and many others, Jonas Gordwein and and so on, Um, major figure in American uh, literature, major contrarian figure of the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s. Um, But she also wrote two books of ethnography, one on the Gulf Coast and another on Haiti and Jamaica that are remarkable pieces of writing and observation under Boaz's tutelage. The revolution that they wrought was encapsulated in a phrase they invented. In fact, we owe the phrase to Ruth Benedict in a book of hers called Patterns of Culture from the 1930s. Many of you may have have read one of the most widely cited, widely read pieces of social science of the 20th century. The term was, she called it, cultural relativity. But we tend to call it cultural relativism now. The basic idea is that societies are not ranked in terms of savagery, barbarism, and civilization. Other people in the world are not just previous versions of us. That in every society in which they, every society they studied, mead in Samoa very famously, Ruth Benedict in the American Southwest, Boaz in, on the Northwest Coast and Baffin Island, um, Hurston in the Gulf Coast and the Caribbean, and many, many other students who came through um, uh, Boaz's world, they found the same set of problems encountered by every society. How do you live a good life? How do you grow old appropriately? What's a good marriage? How do you raise a kid? What's a good and appropriate death? Who should you love and how should you love them? What's the right way to love them? A whole set of fundamental questions that define what it means to be human. We are connected, they said, by our common problems, these basic problems that we all face. What is different from society to society is the solutions that we propose to those problems. But there is no reason to suppose that the solutions that we have right now in this society in 1919 or 2019 are the best solutions, the solutions for all time, the ones that produce human flourishing and human happiness, they just happen to be ours. And the other feature of human societies that Boaz found is a near universal is the tendency to equate our way of doing things with the natural way of doing things, our way of doing things with the obvious way of doing things. The only thing that was different about the society in which Boaz found himself and... He taught this to his students. The only thing different about early 20th century New York, or the United States, was that we had taken this common human tendency to see our own solutions as the obvious and natural and God-given ones, and erect an entire science around it. The social science of the day, racial science of the day. To erect great institutions like the Library of Congress, or the American Museum of Natural History, or the Field Museum in Chicago, and put our version of reality on display as the scientific one. To marry this scientific conception of the world with this common human tendency to equate our way of doing things with the natural way of doing things. This turned out to be a revolutionary way of seeing the world because it upended everything. It upended the idea that we're the endpoint of human civilization, it upended relations between men and women, that those existed in a natural hierarchy. It upended relations across racial categories. In fact, it upended the idea of race itself as not a scientific, biological, inheritable thing, but simply a category that society had produced, in fact, that powerful people in society had produced, to keep a power hierarchy in place that benefited them. They would go on to have lives that were complicated, uh, to say the least. They fell in and out of love with each other. They wrote thousands and thousands of pages of letters, many of which I've read. Mead collected most of them. Mead was the great pack rat of this group. And the Mead Archives at the Library of Congress, conveniently located about six blocks from where Maggie and I live, um, contained half a million items, 500,000 items. Um, I know when Meade was excused, um, had an excused absence note in elementary school, um, what her uh, a corset consultant recommended. Um, all of this stuff she kept, including the love letters between herself and many of the members of, um, of the circle. What I thought I would do was read a little bit uh, to you from the book um, about Meade herself, who's, of course, a very important uh, figure. Uh, in, in this entire story and a very important figure, of course, in this revolution in thought that the book tries to, um, tries to go through. Let me sort of set up the reading a little bit for you, if you don't mind, at the beginning, um, just to give you a kind of cast of characters. So there's Margaret Mead herself. She is just about to set off for American Samoa. She has finished writing her dissertation under Boaz's direction. And Typically then, you would write your dissertation based on what you could find in the library and then go out and do your initial field work after you had completed your doctorate so there's Mead, there's Ruth Benedict her old TA who also has become her great infatuation and on the way across the United States um, has become her lover so um, Mead is also, however, married at this time to a man named Luther Cressman, who is an ex-seminarian who has now become, he's going back to graduate school to become a sociologist. Um, and she has just ended an affair with a guy named Edward Sapir. Edward Sapir would go on to become one of the, one of the founders of American linguistics. I said it was complicated, didn't I? So it was a complicated um, life. Um, oh, and then I think Stanley Benedict, who is working on his small engine repair and is the uh, husband of Ruth Benedict at the time, is in this story somewhere um, as well. So in Hawaii... By the way, you were in 1925. 1925. In Hawaii, Mead prepared as best she could She arranged for language lessons and made contacts with scholars at the Bernice P. Bishop Museum, the renowned repository of Polynesian culture and natural history. She had planned to do some collecting for the museum once she reached Samoa. In late August, she was at sea again on board the steamship Sonoma on the middle leg of its passage to Sydney, Australia. She lay in bed with severe seasickness, sleeping up to 16 hours a day and rarely venturing on deck except for meals. At last, on the final day of the month, the ship rounded a headland on Tutuila, the main island of American Samoa, and anchored off the crescent expanse of the village of Pongo Pongo. Meade was immediately thrown into the chaos and excitement that accompanied the arrival of any passenger ship, now amplified by the welcome given to to the destroyers and support craft of the U.S. fleet, which had arrived on precisely the same day on a grand naval tour. Admiral Robert Kuntz, the fleet commander, was met from his flagship USS Seattle by Mauga, the Samoan governor of Tutuila and other local dignitaries, all wearing elaborate headdresses and grass skirts, their bare torsos oiled to a fine glow. Sailors crowded the village common to witness the formal presentation of gifts to the American guests, an assortment of coconuts, finely woven mats, strings of beads, and pieces of painted bark cloth. The admiral expressed gratitude on behalf of himself and President Calvin Coolidge, while a group of young men and women prepared for the SIVA, or welcoming dance. Meade had brought along an evening dress in case such occasions presented themselves in the South Seas. And she joined in the festivities on board. That night, she found herself enduring an impromptu lecture from a Navy officer, her escort, for the evening. Quote, he told me what he thought about language, instincts, race, inheritance, and a few allied subjects, she recalled. And I discovered that the most boring thing in the world is to listen to someone talk to you about your specialty. It's an early recorded instance of what came to be called mansplaining, by the way. Um, She was eager to get moving, to begin discovering Samoa for herself, rather than to hear about it secondhand from a voluble seaman. Soon, her letters to friends and family would arrive on newly printed letterhead that replaced the old version she had used in Bucks County. It now read exotically, Margaret Mead, Pongo Pongo, Tutuila, Samoa. From Pango Pongo, Pongo Meat could take short journeys to inland villages, a formal trip known as a malanga, which was accompanied by speech making, ritual gift giving, and the ceremonial making of ava, the Polynesian drink prepared from the roots of the kava shrub. In a village across the island from Pongo Pongo, she was made an honorary virgin, a position of esteem that she would carry with her in her other travels to Samoa, but none of that guaranteed the kind of access she would need to make her research a real success. Mead was already experiencing how hard it was to do field work without really getting out from under the mosquito net. You had no way of knowing whether you were asking good questions or stupid ones. Informants tended to say what they thought you wanted to hear. When a chief's son is tattooed, they build a special house, don't they? She asked uh, one of the village chiefs in Pongo Pongo. No, no special house, he replied. Are you sure they never build a house? Yes. Well, sometimes they build a house of of sticks and leaves, yes. This is from Mead's Notebooks, by the way. Was that house saw or taboo? No, not saw. Could you take food into it? Oh, oh, no, that's saw. Could you smoke in there? Oh, no, very saw. Would anybody go into the house who wished to go in? Yes, anybody. Anybody at all, just anybody. Yes, everybody could go in. No one was forbidden to go in. No. Could the boy's sister go in? Oh, no, that's taboo. (laughs) By mid-October, Meade had decided that the island of Tutuila had little more to offer. The only sizable villages were overrun with missionary stores and various intrusive influences, she wrote to Boaz and were much corrupted by the influence of the Americans. The governor's plan for increasing literacy involved printing up a collection of European fairy tales as if Samoans had none of their own. The whole American administration seemed to think of local people as a suggestible lot of children and treated them accordingly. The foreigners at the local hotel spent their time complaining about how hard it was to get good help. On November 9th, Meat caught a steamer to a more remote set of islands about hundred miles from Tutuila, the Manu'a group. From there, she continued by canoe to Tau, a small island in the chain. She had barely begun her work with adolescents, which was supposed to be the focus of her study, and Tau seemed to have them in abundance. It was also sufficiently off the beaten path to have no worrisome missionaries. She took up residence with an American family on the island, the Holtz, whose white clapboard house served as the local clinic. She had worried, though, that this might not constitute real fieldwork. As she wrote to Boaz, she was torn between the desire to live like a native and the need to have enough quiet time to write notes and reflect on her experiences, something that would have been difficult in an open-sided communal Samoan house. She might have been doing anthropology from the veranda, her room consisted of half of the Holtz back porch screened off by a thin bamboo barrier, but she was never short of informants. Children and teenagers flocked to her for conversation and impromptu dance parties arriving as early as five in the morning and staying until midnight. She hung a picture of Boaz on her wall and decorated it with red hibiscus, taking it down occasionally to show the gaggle of children whenever they asked about the strange looking man she seemed to revere. She took to signing her letters Makalita, the pronunciation of her name in Samoan. Quote, find I am happiest here, she wrote in one of her bulletins back to family and friends, when I am alone with the villagers either bathing or lying on the floor of a Samoan house watching the sea or making long flowery speeches to some old chief. As the hot summer began, winter back in New York, she was worried that time was slipping away. She collected little of value at least not enough to justify the National Research Council Fellowship or the considerable money that Edward Mead, her father, had spent for the passage on the Matsonia and Sonoma. Her old life was intruding as well. Edward Sapir, remember she had just broken off an affair with him, continued to send tortured letters by turns pleading and insulting, calling on her to give up the farcical trip and return to his side. She wanted to burn them but decided she couldn't do it, at least not yet. She wondered whether they were in fact documentary proof that she had made a terrible mistake. Confirmation from a great scholar that traipsing off to the far side of the world had been a fool's errand all along. At the same time, Sapir kept up his correspondence with Benedict, a friend of his, urging that they work together to force Mead to get professional help when she returned. Full institutionalization might even be required. Truly, my dear Ruth, Margaret is not well, and the physical part of it is almost negligible in comparison with the psychic," he wrote. Margaret's most insidious enemy is her zestfulness, her unflagging interest in things. A girl as frail as Margaret simply has no right, underlined, to accomplish what she does. And the title of that chapter is A Girl As Frail As Margaret. Um, of course that girl as frail as Margaret would go on to write up the research three years later as coming of age in Samoa which would be a scandalous book when it was published in 1928 it would continue to be scandalous until the 1960s um, uh, and beyond and including when uh, come the 1980s and 1990s it was, what, it was attacked um, again in a new round of it has to, has to be said male anthropologists attacking uh, Margaret Mead yet yet again. I want to say just a couple of words about the title of uh, this book before throwing things open to questions and conversation. I hope we can have a good conversation. Um, the title, Gods of the Upper Air, is a quote from uh, the autobiography of another member of the circle, Zora Neale Hurston. Um, it was a section of her autobiography that was uh, redacted by her editor. Um, her autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road was published in 1942 and it contains some very serious critiques of race policy in the United States. Um, She simply asked the question why is the United States fighting for freedom abroad when it seems so hard domestically to realize exactly the freedoms that the US is supporting and in a time of war those kinds of questions didn't seem to be appropriate at least to her publisher. Um, So whole sections were were, were taken, whole chapters in fact, were taken out of her autobiography, but they survived and they've since been restored in a restored published edition. She has a beautiful poetic way of encapsulating what the Boas group was trying to do, what cultural relativity, relativism really meant both as a scientific and a moral commitment to the world. And the title of the book is taken from uh, one of the epigraphs that I used to begin the book, Hurston writes, I do not say that my conclusions about anything are true for the universe, capital U, but I have lived in many ways, sweet and bitter, and they feel right for me. I've walked in storms with a crown of clouds about my head and the zigzag lightning playing through my fingers. The gods of the upper air have uncovered their face to my eyes." What she meant, I think, is that if you can take on, as a scientist or as just a regular human being, this view from the upper air, this view in which the culturally specific, socially specific dividing lines between human beings begin to disappear, and we see things from on high, we see the common humanity of folks, we will at last have come to worship the gods of the upper air as opposed to that other set of deities that she called the gods of the pigeonholes the ones that seek to categorize folks in ways that make sense to us right here, right now, in this society, but from the perspective of the gods of the upper air look very, very silly and time-bound. Thanks very much, folks. Thanks so much for coming out. I'm happy to have a conversation with you now.
0: If you have a question, feel free to raise your hand and I'll come around with a wireless mic. Yes, starting back here. Anyone? Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Every time I to, tend to look back at uh, people of 100 years ago and scoff at them and think how naive they were.
2: Yeah, yeah, indeed.
0: I uh, th- think ahead to how people for 100 years from now will look back on me. I like to think I'm so forward-thinking, but I'm sure they'll tell me I was wrong. Yeah. So how do you think society is now in terms of seeing the perspective from the gods of the upper air? Do you think that at least American society is changing and seeing more of the, the broader perspective rather than just their own like we used to?
2: That, that, that's, that's a wonderful question. Um, we can be assured, Boaz and Mead and Hearst and others will tell us, we can be assured that a century from now people will look back at us and wonder, how, how could you possibly have seen the world in the way that you do? How could you have been so blind to the things that seem so obvious, whether it's climate change or, you know, you name it, that you knew these things. They, they were staring you in the face, and yet we didn't seem to have an ability to take the kind of perspective that they, 100 years ago, were encouraging us uh, to have. But Boaz very famously said that that shouldn't, um, that shouldn't prevent us from, from living now and being experts in the culture in which we happen to find ourselves, while also trying to have a more global perspective. He said, you know, in in, in every society that he had studied, there were things that you might call good manners. There were things that you might call modesty. There were things that were called appropriate marriages and inappropriate marriages. So there are human universals that you can identify that it's so interesting that we've evolved a thing that we call modesty in societies around the world. And that's a thing that unites all of us around the world. Now, what counts as modesty, what counts as good behavior, what counts as ethical behavior, that's different from society to society. And so the goal of a professional social scientist is to sort of gather in all these different ways of seeing the world, because you never know when like a plant that exists in some jungle that might cure a fatal disease, the way some other society in another place in another time has figured out these common problems of living might inform our way of seeing the world, might inform our way of living now. That's what the professional anthropologists um, are up to, he said. But for the rest of us, um, there's also a moral lesson here, which is that, it is certainly true that senses of morality, appropriateness, categories change over time. But the one thing you can be sure of is that if you apply the principle that regardless of what you think your what regardless of what you think about what constitutes right behavior, moral behavior, ethical behavior, figure out whatever that best kind of behavior in your society is. And then apply it to an ever-widening circle of people. And think about that for a moment. That's a remarkable ethical principle to live by. Don't worry too much about what the content of your rules of behavior are. Eat this, don't eat that, marry that person, don't marry this person, lie to that person, kill that person, take that person in as a friend. Forget about the rules. Think about the people to whom the rules apply. Do the rules only apply to people who are citizens of your country? And then you can behave however you want to people who aren't citizens of your country. Do the rules apply only to your family or your kinship group, your racial group, your ethnic group, people you are familiar with, those who speak your language, people who get your jokes, people who cook a kind of food that you don't mind smelling? What's the circle of people to whom the rules apply, and can we live a life in which we try ever to expand that circle? So that, Boaz said, we get to this point when we're applying our best sense of morality, what we think of as our best behavior, to the people we also think least deserve it. And that's a remarkable principle according to which to live. That's the morality, if you want to put it that way, that's the morality that came out of his science.
0: Any other questions? Yes:
3: That sort of led into my question. so how do you get people to do that? And I do think um, there's a natural humans in general want to create a taxonomy of some sort, right mm-hmm. So it's a little bit about that, but it's also a little bit about we want to be who wants to be on the top. So how do you get people to apply those things? Do the anthropologists have ideas about that:
2: Well, I have to say, I can't speak for anthropologists. I'm really a historian. Um, uh, So I'm a historian of the anthropologists. Or is it an anthropologist of the anthropologists? Anyway, um, you know, I think if Boas were looking at our society today, or Mead or others looking at our society, they would say, of course, things have changed markedly, right? The way a museum looks now is fundamentally different from the way a museum looked a century ago. the way um, human geography is taught now, fundamentally different from the way it was um, a, a century ago. Um, you know, we, we teach in our schools ideas about racism and ethnocentrism and, and put those ideas, the, the, the abhorrence of those ideas, we build into um, the way that... Uh, we think about the past, and we teach, you know, American history, and, and so forth. Um, not always successful, clearly, at um, at instilling those ideas. But you know, there has been a, a real change. In fact, I would say when I when I first started writing this book, about 2014 or so, research and writing it, um, it had a ridiculously ridiculously triumphant air to it. Um, you know, uh, we were living at a time when it really looked like so many of these ideas um, had had really kind of taken root, you know. Um, but we're living in a moment now, of course, that looks so much more like the moment they were living in, in some ways. I mean, in some, in, in some ways. So I think, I think there is certainly progress. And as, you know, as, as, as Bo is like, literally... Boaz's last words, he died at a lunch at the Columbia Faculty Club um, in 1942, December of 1942. Um, And literally his last recorded words were we should never stop insisting on the lie of race. Meaning we should never stop insisting on the biologization of that concept as being this Abhorrent idea that was rooted in American society from the very beginning, reinforced through racial science, reinforced through museums, and and so on. So I would I think as you know part of the answer is you have to keep insisting on these ideas. You have to keep insisting that the way we see the world is not um, is not the exclusive way of seeing the world, nor is there any particular claim to its being the best way of seeing the world. Question over
1: here. In this project, did you have any curiosity that went unsated? Were there any questions you had for which there wasn't data?
2: Wow, that's a that's a wonderful question. Let me think about that for um, for a moment. Um, well, anytime you're doing a, a thing that's a kind that's kind of biography, right? You never have everything you want to know um, about a particular person or a particular set of incidents. Um, uh, even though there's a lot because of the Mead collection, there's a lot of stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there, and I think there there are um, even in you know the the book has only been out for a week, and I have already gotten lots of emails from, that begin with "I really enjoyed your book. I was surprised to see that you didn't mention and then fill in <laughs> sort of fill in the." The blank, because um, you know this group had so many members to it, and um, and there are they they spawned you know an entire they spawned generations of social scientists in lots of different fields in anthropology, sociology, um, journalism, and lots of different fields. And so people have I think their favorite um, favorite members of the uh, of the group. Um, I wish I had just to answer your question directly. I wish I had more from, um, just to take one example, from Edward Sapir's perspective about things. Um, Sapir was this amazing linguist. He was the person within the group who was most readily called a genius by everybody else in the group. You know, he wrote brilliantly. I mean, he did more to kind of theorize what they meant by the concept of culture, for example, than um, than just about any other. And I have to say, he comes off looking pretty bad. (laughs) Um, in, in this book because you know you should probably never read other people's love letters um, but Meade kept them all and uh, they belong to the people of the United States uh, now and you can go look at them um, in, in the Library of Congress but um, I think you know um, if, if we had the story from his side I might have um, that, that might be slightly different.
0: Other questions?
4: Hi. So um, I'm not fully familiar with Margaret Mead other than what I read in college half a century ago. Um, (laughs) But as I was sitting here listening to you and uh, talking about absolute morality or the lack thereof or absolutism, so have we arrived or is there a true answer, I started asking myself... um, I'm Italian, and mm-hmm. I start thinking about the Roman Empire and the Greeks and so on and so forth. And I think much of the morality and things that we have have been very cyclical. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, in Greeks, uh, homosexuality was uh, very accepted. Mm-hmm. In Rome, we find out in, in, in Pompeii that sex was celebrated, for example. Um, and then we come with the persecution of the Jews up and down, up and down until World War II. Do you see that there is any absolute right place to be? Are we making any progress towards that? Or do, are we doomed to kind of just keep repeating this cycle over and over and over? Well,
2: let me give you a Boazian answer, um, which is, first of all, I don't know, but I never found it, right? And if you're going to be a scientist, as Boas, you know, when they used this term scientist, they thought of themselves as scientists because they were working with empirical data, making claims about the world based on observable data. They hadn't found any society, including their own, that had it all figured out. In fact, what they found was nearly universal, at least. And Boas would always say, in all, he would never say, in all human societies. He would say, in the societies of which we have knowledge, which is the, exactly the right way to put it. In the societies of which we have knowledge, there tends to be um, the common practice of claiming one kind of morality and living by another. Um, so, you know, the controversy around Mead in this book in 1928, Coming of Age in Samoa, where um, she, you know, found that um, teenagers in Samoa were having sex, um, and kind of enjoying it. It turned it turned out. Now Mead had been an undergraduate, <laughs> you know. She had been a what was called at the time a teener. The word teenager wasn't quite invented yet, but she had been a teener. She herself had been involved in a whole set of relationships when she was at Barnard, across gender lines. Not uncommon. And part of the controversy of the book was not that she had found a free love society where everything worked out fine. If you read Coming of Age in Samoa, she's very clear on the way in which things aren't free love. And and, and people are really constrained in various ways in terms of the relationships that they can have. It's just the constraints aren't the constraints that she knew coming from her, society, her own society. So this was a great mirror that she was holding up to America in the 1920s, and that's why the book itself was so difficult for so many people to read, because she was saying, yes, there are a set of puritanical values in America of the 1920s, but there's also this incredible angst that the teeners of the time are not abiding by them, right? This is the great sort of youth revolt of the 1920s, you know, with uh, bathtubs full of gin and petting parties, whatever those things were. And, you know, so all of this was, she was saying the value of going abroad is that it teaches you something new about home. That's the whole point of this. The first chapter of the book is called Away. The last chapter of the book is called Home because it's about the power of seeing the world through another lens.
3: Thank you for uh, sharing a bit of the book with us and some of the background. Um, I uh, have a great respect for this set of people as, a, um, as an anthropologist. Um, and the only bit of the book that I had access to prior to this evening um, was an excerpt, and I'm sorry, I can't remember where I encountered it, um, that focused on Mead's shifting relationships in the field.
2: Oh, yeah, that was in the Chronicle of Higher Ed. Okay, Mm -hmm. thank you. Um,
3: And and based solely on that, I thought that the title of your book referred to Mead and her colleagues as the gods of the upper (laughs) air um, who were, you know, engaged in this set of relational shenanigans Mm -hmm. kind of... um, uh, Placed upon this scene of people living their lives in other yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. And um, so a certain um, prerogative arrogance to, mm. you, know, um, be sort of engaging in, in one's life in that context. Um, and so um, the, the question that I have is, um, how did you envision weaving together these relational stories? with the other historical information and argument that you wanted to get across in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. What was your sort of um, framework for that, yeah. and why did you choose it?
2: Yeah, so the book really does try to do two things. I mean, it, it tries to be a collective biography of this group of people and how they lived their lives, the way they came together, fell apart, um, but also about a set of ideas that that I believe came out of those relationships. Because um, they all, at some point, had a a kind of transformational experience as individuals. And usually that was somewhere in the field. Um, And the experience involved realizing that in the place they happened to find themselves, whether it was on Baffin Island for Boaz, or American Samoa for Meade, or New Orleans for Hurston. They were absolutely stupid. You know, they came from they, they were well educated. They had graduate degrees. You know, Boas had degrees from some of the finest German universities. Mead was—you know—one of the early women to complete a PhD in anthropology. And yet, when they got to this place, they didn't know how to speak. Like, literally, didn't know how to speak to be understood. They didn't know what it was right, what it was like to be a proper, full adult person rather than to be treated like a child because you speak like a child. And they wove that realization into a kind of theory that, you know, if I can die where I am now, I'm so stupid, that I can die because I'm going to eat the wrong thing or I don't know how to get out of a snowstorm. um, Maybe all of this education I have is itself culturally or socially constrained, culturally or socially determined. And that kind of personal transformation turned out to be very important to them. The other way in which their personal lives fed into their theory is that they were all outsiders in some way, right? Boaz, an, an, an immigrant, German, Jewish. Um, uh, Mead in her relationship with Benedict involved in a relationship that was unnameable you know, at the time. Um, Hurston, the only African-American student at Barnard um, at the time, um, they all realized that at some point the anxiety, the angst, the sense that you don't fit where you are in a society that's already familiar to you, where you do speak the language, you do know what to eat without having it kill you. If you can't fit in that context, you have one of two choices. Either you conclude that I'm deviant, something's wrong with me, right? Something's deeply wrong with me because I don't fit in the society that I'm supposed to be an expert on. Or there's something about the fit between me and this place that's not about me, but about the rules that are constraining me. And then I can begin to analyze those rules and see those rules and see them as just one of a number of ways of seeing the world. And so in the book, there's a lot about um, fights, love affairs, um, uh, professional disagreements and jealousies, because all of those things, I think, are really central to this story. And for the academics in the room, I mean, we, we kind of put all of these things, we hide them in, we don't even put them in the footnotes. We just sort of hide them out of our lives, right? But we're actually human beings at the same time that we're producing scholarship we're producing new ideas. And I'm trying to bring that out, you know, in this set of thinkers the book.
3: I have a comment and a question. Um, in, me, in the media and even in academia, anthropology has sometimes gotten a pretty bad rap hmm. for exoticizing cultures, homogenizing cultures, um, even supporting colonial regimes. So as an anthropologist who loves my discipline, I just want to thank you for giving us a positive portrayal of anthropology and giving credit to this really remarkable group of scholars. Um my question is what inspired you to write this book?
2: Uh well let me take the second second one first I mean I married an anthropologist so um that's uh point number 1 and um and you know I, I I do think in the um breakfast table and dinner table conversations we have which um have been about you know how do you how do you see the world how do you make sense of the world and I think I I have come to understand that if you're trained in anthropology, you do, you do absorb not just a, me- a set of methodologies and theories, but you absorb a worldview. And th- maybe that's true of other disciplines. I think it's certainly true of economics, um, a very different worldview. Um, but you absorb. I think you absorb a thing that comes out of the worldview that they wanted to try to impart, and that. Struck me as a really remarkable thing that this academic discipline could reshape a kind of person, right? Not just teach you a set of theories, but shape a person, shape a way of living in the world. And um, that to me was a pretty exciting set of ideas. I also wanted to to define a vehicle to tell this story of what I think has been a sea change in American popular life, in American cultural and social life over the last century on issues of race, gender, sexuality, and so on. Not a finished revolution by any stretch of the imagination, but one that is revolutionary nevertheless. And these are the people that I think were responsible for. Because, just one more point on that, because they realize that in an era in which the hierarchies, the categories that were presented to you were presented as science, you know, that this is objective scientific reality, that there are higher and lower peoples and so on. That had to be countered by science, not countered by morality or tolerance or religion. That had to be countered by science. And they proposed an alternative empirically based observational science by going around the world and collecting the way other people Um, Other people did things. I will say on your first point, um, there is an entire chapter about the way in which these people in particular didn't get things right. and there's another member I haven't even talked about of this group named Ella Deloria, who was a Dakota activist at the time. And there's, she's in this chapter. She's woven throughout, uh, uh, throughout the book. And that's also a vehicle for talking about the treatment of indigenous communities and cultures, where usually their theory outstripped
0: their actual practice, even with, even with these folks. So we are running out of time. So we have time for two questions. I saw two hands in the front here. And I'll try to speak uh, Hello. hello. Uh, uh,
2: I wanted to ask you about your end product of your research and books. seems to me that uh, the tendency from multiculturalism goes to the modern nationalism all over the world, especially in Europe, from Baltic countries, Poland, Hungary, France. All modules what you mentioned about including smell of the food is a component of the nationalism or modern nationalism. My question is, what do you think about the tendency going from multiculturalism to the modern nationalism? Is this end product of your research uh, or not? OK. Should I take the other question, too, and then maybe do both of them together sure. or? Yeah. Thank you. I'll come back to that. OK. Um, I mean, it is certainly true that we are living in a moment of resurgent nationalism um, in this country and in many countries around the world. Um, It has a particular character to it. Um, It is a nationalism that is rooted in the belief that one type of person with one type of language and one type of culture is the most legitimate inhabitant of a particular piece of real estate. and that the vehicle for realizing that idea in the world is a single person, often a, um, a charismatic or perceived to be charismatic man, almost exclusively, um, who somehow embodies this idea. And that this man is expert at being a truth teller. That in an age of political correctness and thin cosmopolitanism, finally, someone has come along who is able to speak the truth. That is an idea that you only have to turn on certain television stations in this country to see, or um, you see it in France, you see it um, really around, you see it in Hungary, you see it in the Philippines, you see it in Turkey, you see it around, around the world, the rise of this particular uh, set of ideas. Um, the, the counter to that, it seems to me, um, is not, as Boaz uh, and others were saying, is not to preach the idea of tolerance. It's simply to point out again and again and again that the ideas on which that political philosophy is based are simply not true. That the ideas on which those, that political philosophy is founded are a set of ideas that time and time and time again have been shown... Simply to be, simply to be false, and this is why it's so critical. I think in in classrooms, um, in the media, and elsewhere, to continually present stories that that show those basic ideas to be banal, false, not borne out by human experience. You know, um, uh, if you if you have a vision of history that is based on fundamental myth, rather than encouraging people to investigate their own past, investigate the path of their society, tell multiple stories about the past. uh, that's the way I think you have to teach culture, history, society in a, in a place, to develop those kinds of critical skills, rather than to replace this linear narrative that Boaz and the others were trying to trying to fight with some other linear narrative on, on the other side. If there's one thing beyond this sense of widening the human circle, the people to whom you owe ethical behavior that Boaz wanted to to impart, it was the idea that developing a critical mind is the end point of all education and it's really hard because you've got to live in a society be an expert in that society while also being deeply critical of it and that's why i think this band of outsiders were able to see that so much more clearly than most of the others in their day. They knew how to live in a society, but they also knew what it was like to critique it at the same time.
0: Can we give a round of applause for Charles?
2: Thanks, folks. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming.
3: You have been listening to the
2: Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit MidtownScholar.com. The
1: Midtown Scholar Bookstore author reading
3: podcast is a free podcast
1: and does not own the rights to any of the readings.